Jerry Ratcliffe here with Reducing Crime, a podcast featuring influential thinkers in the police service and leading crime and policing researchers. Rob Breener is an organizational psychology professor and a guru in the area of evidence-based management. I learned from him what lessons policing can glean from the evidence-based policy movements in other fields. Find out more in this podcast at reducingcrime.com and on Twitter at underscore reducingcrime. Even if you don't know Rob Breener, you will likely know his ideas because the work of him and his colleagues at the Centre for Evidence-Based Management has been hugely influential to evidence-based policing practitioners on both sides of the Atlantic. He's a professor of organisational psychology at Queen Mary University of London, where he studies organisational psychology and work and well-being. He's also the scientific director of the Centre for Evidence-Based Management, which, through its teaching, training and easily accessible materials, aims to help managers make better decisions by adopting the principles of evidence-based practice. Dr. Breen is regularly invited as a keynote speaker to discuss evidence-based management, and his work in this area has led to him being named in 2015 the second most influential HR thinker by HR magazine. In 2014, he was awarded the British Psychology Society Division of Occupational Psychology Academic Contribution to Practice Award. We chat about the vital role of accountability in pushing evidence-based practice, the appeal of apparent simplicity and good intentions that can actually trap people in harmful responses, and the idea of watchful waiting. Because academics like to be promote their own research, of course, and their own fields. Oh, just generally promote themselves. Yeah, it's not about that, so it's, it's sort of difficult. You know, particularly things like MBA programs and other kind of business management programs that, that there doesn't seem to be much of an appetite for teaching evidence-based stuff. That's weird because... Yeah, I think it's a bit weird, yeah. It feels weird to listen to you running into those sorts of problems mm. because I think having sort of read your blog and looked at the mm. website and watched your videos, I come away with the impression that evidence-based practice seems to be so much better in organisational psychology and management than no. HR. It kind of feels like we're beginners at it, but what you're saying is actually no. the, the hurdles are still the same. I think they are, and I think they're the same across different fields, yeah. The difference in medicine, I suppose, is that you had the NHS. The National Health Service, yeah. And the insurance companies that help in terms of sort of trying to corral that evidence at least, or at least try and get it together. But even in medical schools, my understanding is evidence-based practice is not always taught or not taught very well. So that's interesting. I mean, if police departments actually had to carry insurance, do you think that would actually help advance evidence-based practice? In terms of if you screw up or don't help, or yeah, yeah, yeah. Certainly around things like officer safety. Or yeah, I think it would in the sense of that part of it's about accountability. My limited experience, if you go to sectors, maybe like, you know, oil and gas or the airline industry, those sectors, they're a bit more relaxed about evidence-based management. They're very used to accountability. Like if we screw up, everyone's going to know, we're going to have to explain ourselves. And they're more used to using data. So I think in those kind of contexts, it's more, yeah. So I think, so I think if you get any mechanism of increasing accountability, including maybe insurance, could help people be more, yeah, let's do this in an evidence-based way, that's okay. Right. Whereas if people don't have much accountability and nothing, very few actions they take have any real consequences and will be scrutinised, then people going, why would I do that? Well, in policing we have, especially if you look at senior management, there are a lot of consequences, but that doesn't necessarily mean there's accountability. I mean, we've got police chiefs across the United States, for example, here, who went to the police academy 30 years ago where they didn't teach anything to do with Mm. anything other than criminal evidence, which is not what we're talking about. 
And they've hardly had any education yes, since. Yeah. And they're a police chief with their knowledge yeah. was minimal to begin with, and it's 30 years out yes. of date. And you know, that's partly why it started in medicine for exactly the same reason. You get consultant, like a consultant surgeon, who basically hasn't been, had any training for 20 years, hasn't read any journal articles, any science since, but they are the top of their career. So it's partly done because I think more junior, you know, medical practitioners get really pissed off with the people at the top who had all the power and resources because they were actually some of the people that were really worst at this, but they had the most power. And how, so how did the medical field, if you don't mind talking about the medical field, how did the medical sure. field overcome that? Because that deference to rank and mm. experience in policing is huge mm. and it's incredibly difficult to overcome. I don't think they have overcome it or completely overcome it by any stretch of the imagination. But I think what they have been doing is trying to make sure that when people get into those roles that they are actually become kind of champions of evidence-based practice and actually understand what it means and how to do it and actually support others in doing it as well by being maybe more transparent about the decisions and what they do and the way they use all kinds of data as well. So I think it, you can't overcome some of the stuff that comes from rank and hierarchy, but if those people in higher up positions are modelling what it is you're supposed to do in evidence-based practice, and I think it becomes a bit easier. Like what Max Planck, the physicist, said, you know, science advances one funeral at a yes. time. Yeah. So we're here at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Cincinnati, and there are 250, 300 people here. We'll move forward in about 10 years when all these people reach a rank where they can actually kind of drive the whole organisation. Yeah, and that's a, that's a view also that's been expressed in the context of evidence-based management, that the people who are senior now in organisations as managers, chief executives, etc., they're probably not going to change the way they do things because they're actually quite successful. And they were successful under the old regime. That's right. And wh where would it get them? They were successful yeah. under the old way of doing things. Yeah, yeah. So the most sure. we can hope is they just get out the way to allow people with more of an innovative practice and thought yeah, to come and so, through. And some of them indeed some of them indeed may do that, I think. It's not the case that no senior people get it and they think it's important, but but yeah, most because they got there, as you said, under another system. So policing in some regards is more similar to many of the other fields that you've worked in and worked with than, yeah. than I was expecting. Yeah, I see looking across evidence based practice across, you know, from medicine to social work to education to policing, I actually see more and more similarities both in terms of how you do it, and I think there's pretty strong agreement more or less about the process and about set of principles, but also see more and more similarities in terms of barriers. And where I'm personally at now with this stuff is, I think it's important to explain people what evidence-based practice is, but what is most striking is the, is the barriers, the things that get in the way. And I think those barriers are incredibly similar across, across all these different professions. Such as? Such as, for example, not having adequate training, in policing, the first budget to go is the training budget. Right. We all support the number of bodies, but there's, we don't care about whether they're yeah. trained enough. We just, yeah. It's about how many police officers you have, regardless of yeah. whether there's any budget available for training or sure. education. That's always the first budget that gets cut. Yeah. Training is one. I think incentives is another. So I didn't talk about it today, but sometimes I discuss the sort of explicit goals of any professional. And, many, and actually the implicit goals. So as a manager, the explicit goals might be to do what's really effective and help the organisation. The implicit goal is to do whatever will get you promoted. And often they're not the same things. So right. we put people in a position where we, we sort of say we would like you to do X, Y and Z, but actually reward them for A, B and C. So I think that's a quite a common barrier you find that people, sort of managers and other people I talk to around this would say to me, evidence-based practice is great, but there's no point in me doing it because actually that won't help me in my career. Is there 
ways that you've identified that policing is unique? I mean, it, you're saying there's yeah. a lot of similarities, but there are other ways that policing is to some degree unique? Yeah, I think it's unique in that, for example, in the UK and I think in the US and other countries, a bit there's, there's more institutions that have been set up to actually try and pull together scientific evidence and to maybe run trials and those kinds of things, which we certainly haven't seen in management. You don't see it that much in education. You do see it in medicine, of course. There seems to be a bit more infrastructure around it, but it doesn't mean that infrastructure is always working as effectively as one would like. And also I think the other, it's not unique, but the other thing about it that marks it out a bit is that the as a professional discipline, it was one of the earliest to say, we're going to try and do evidence-based practice. So back to Lawrence Sherman, 1998, and actually what he was writing four years before that. So it was quite an early adopter, I think, compared to other disciplines. That's funny. I think a lot of people have the impression that we're very late in adopting because we look at the medical field. Yes. And they ran their first randomised trials in the 1840s. And we kind of think, wow, we are so far behind. Mm. But what you're actually saying is compared to a number of fields yeah. that we're in the middle of the pack. Yeah, I think so. So the speed in which it's being adopted or if, if, when you're embedded in evidence-based policing, as many of us are, it feels painfully slow yes. to move forward. And I can't decide, when I mean, you talked about the UK. So in the UK, you've got 43 police services, one in Scotland, mm. one in Northern Ireland. You've got a college of policing, um, like you have a college of medicine, a college of surgery. Is that something that would be necessary here in the US? We have 18, maybe 18,000 police departments. We don't really know. Yeah. Um, maybe a bit more than 800,000 police officers. Again, we don't really know. But no sort of coherent group or organization like a college of policing mm. to pull it all together. I mean, I think it would help but my understanding in the US is the jurisdictions are so different the law that applies can change quite a lot and uh, they overlap yeah and it's in some senses much closer to, to local politics than maybe it is in the UK a yes. bit. so I think all those things mean you both need some overarching organizing system but also it means it's much harder to do so I think it certainly helps to have those kinds of systems in place but equally, I think it is a way of, if you like, getting more individuals, more groups and teams, which I think it is happening in the US, interested in it, and they go off and sort of spread the work and work in, all, in, in specific organisations, that can help as and well. Which we have with members of the American yeah. Society of yes. Evidence-Based Policing. That's right. And I think so, some of it's also about informal connections. And we've heard lots of stories today, and I hear them a lot around management and other fields of people quite informally coming to evidence-based practice sort of almost on their own. Like they've just been thinking about their work and their job and then they come across evidence-based practice and they go, yeah, that's, that's what I do. That's how I like to think. That's what, how I would like to practice. So I think it happens anyway, but certainly supporting having a more formal structural systems around it, I think is quite important. There is some research that suggests that mentorship is really important in terms of helping people embrace practice. But that's the hardest thing to get going when you have 18,000 departments. Yes. You know, if we have a few hundred people here, which means if you are looking for a mentor, it's probably going to be somebody in another department in another city or mm. in another town. In the UK, I so say there's the College of Policing and they're doing more training and education. Here we have the National Institute of Justice, the federal government, the Bureau of Justice Administration. But they seem to be doing less on the training. They develop websites that are places where we can access information and data and the latest research on policing. But there's less available in terms of training, I think, to some mm. degree. It feels that way anyway. 
is training a gap? Is that the next gap that we have to fill or are there other more pressing concerns? Yeah, I think, I think it depends as ever what you mean by training. So I think supporting people doing it in their everyday practice is very important. And one thing like any training, I'd be concerned about if it takes people away from their everyday work, it teaches them stuff and then they go back into their everyday job and carry on behaving in the way they always have. Not their fault, but because it's hard to transfer. So I think for me, it's probably about as much about development as training, but also I think really encouraging a lot of practice with some sort of support either from other individuals or from groups or teams and it's like any skill I think you just need to keep doing it to, to learn how to do it better and what I suspect is happening in evidence-based policing that happens in other fields as well is people kind of have a go at it once they try it a bit maybe it doesn't work exactly as they would hope and maybe they give up a bit and go back to the the way they did it before so I think finding ways of saying that's okay that's all right it wasn't perfect it's not trying to be perfect you're trying to make a better informed decision here and you did that's fine do it next time, do it next time. So I think developing those habits of working and choosing when to try and do it and when not to do it are probably equally important in terms of developing it than a sort of more formal training thing. I think that's an important starting point. And the question is how can that transfer into real organisations into real practice and that's where it gets a bit trickier. We sometimes run into people saying well there is this one study therefore that's what we yes. should do. A, a, an unwillingness to try replication or to embrace the idea that what works somewhere may not work yeah. exactly the same here or we might be able to tweak that original plan and find better ways to do mm. it that actually improve that level. There's a reluctance to embrace experimentation of replication if, it, yes. if that makes sense. Yes I think there is and I think there's often a reluctance to embrace uncertainty as well. Yes. So the, here's a study or here's three studies, it seemed to work here, but you know what, it might not work here and that's okay, but let's try and understand, let's try and find out whether we think it will, whether we think it won't, what's the basis for that judgment and it may turn out that actually we think no we can't do that or even though we're all very excited about the study so i think it's again going through that same process whether it's around replication or adopting a particular practice or looking at one particular study that in and of itself that just isn't enough you need to sort of embed it and contextualize it with those other sources of evidence as well and i think it's, that's one of the most difficult things because people often get asked the question well you know what's the in management or hr where's the most evidence i'm going why are you asking me that question why is that relevant I mean, what's the problem? Yeah. We don't start with, oh, there's lots of evidence for X, Y, or Z. We start with, what is the question or issue or problem? Because people, I think, are used to or more inclined to thinking, my job is to find solutions. And I'm not sure it is our jobs. I often get asked, should we do this, that, or the other? And the question I, like you say, the question mm. I always have is, what is the problem you're trying yeah. to fix? Yeah. Tell me yeah. what the problem is. Yes. And that's often the hardest thing for people to articulate and conceptualise. It is very difficult. And I think I've sort of, you know, thought all about why it is that people like solutions implementing it and they really don't like doing problem stuff. And in fact, sometimes when we're doing training at the centre, we will work with managers and other groups. We'll say, OK, so in the morning, we're just going to work on a particular problem for you or your organisation. We're just going to think about the problem. We'll look across multiple sources of evidence. We'll critically appraise it. And we're just going to focus this morning just on the problem. And people, within 10 minutes, people are onto the solution. Yeah, yeah. It's just because I think thinking about what the problem might be, it's just harder work. In terms of people's emotions or affect, it's a bit more negative because like, it's, it's puzzling, it's confusing, mm. it's ambiguous, it's difficult. Whereas thinking about a solution and rolling things out and implementing stuff is sort of more fun. It feels like you're doing something. So th and again, this is not just in policing or management, it's across lots of fields. Thinking about stuff is not seen as activity. I often thought that perhaps that was unique to policing mm. because leadership in policing is very much about being decisive. 
Yes. You know, it's a unique field in some regards because what you take is the least experienced people with the least training and you put them out on the streets making executive decisions yes. about how to resolve incidents and deal with calls and make arrests or exercise discretion. I mean, you would never get that in the military. You would never mm. allow your least experienced soldiers to essentially go out on their own. But in policing, we do. Mm. And you have your inexperienced people. And so what good police officers learn, and then they often become supervisors and leaders, is to be decisive and make decisions on their own in the field. And then that translates into their leadership role when they're in charge. And that's why we, they have this whole issue around being unwilling to embrace uncertainty, mm. but also wanting to rush straight to the decision-making, yes. the solving problem. Yeah. And so while that's disheartening, it's also, I suppose, in some regards, reassuring to hear that yeah. that's not just policing. It seems to be human nature. It's human something. I don't know if it's nature, but broadly, I think doing stuff that's tangible and observable is seen to be very important. And if you're not doing stuff that's tangible and observable right now, then what are you doing? It's a sign of weakness almost. Yeah, and I think often not doing things is a great sign of actually great strength and knowledge. I just don't do something and it's not because it's hard to resist it. Just because you're not people cannot observe you thinking. <laughs> it doesn't mean you're not doing something incredibly important. So for some reason, yes, I think we do place way too high emphasis on, on people doing stuff and reward systems reflect that. Normally, it's just how much stuff have you done and people's CVs, resumes get full of stuff they have done. Yeah. In terms of research and science, it's exactly the same thing. Scientists and researchers are under the same sorts of pressures as probably police and managers in that they have to do stuff and make stuff happen. Right. So you have to publish X number of papers a year, as you know, you have to be seen to be doing things, you have to apply for grants, you get performance targets. Bonus pay Bonus if you do pay. things. Yeah. Is this improving science? Probably not. Is it actually helping you improve your career? Probably. The mortgage has got to be paid somehow. Exactly, and this is true. So I think there's often more similarities between people in different kinds of professions and the extent to which they can be evidence-based. There's more similarities, I think, than people often realise. When I got into evidence-based practice, it was specifically around organisational psychology. And I think at the time, I was doing lots of teaching with very mature students, and I'd be teaching them about whatever it was and I'd say, look, here's a really good meta-analysis. And then I'd meet them you know, the next year and say, how's it going? And do you ever use any of this stuff? And, oh, I'm working on this. Did you use that? No. And like, what's wrong with you? Why didn't you use it? And kind of, there's that sense in which I was saying, you need to be using this stuff because we are pure and we're scientists and we can tell you that this stuff's really important. And again, I think as time has gone on, I'm not so sure about that anymore. You've tempered that. Yeah, partly it's because it's about other sources of evidence and also partly it's because I say it's because if you look at the way scientists work themselves work, they're under similar kinds of pressures and which create biases as, as people in other disciplines as well. So it's not that it isn't any good, it's just that you have to understand just things like publication bias where people tend to only publish positive results. Certainly in my field there aren't many replications that you can publish very easily. Same in policing. Yeah. What's interesting about this is that in policing we have uh, management meetings like uh, you may have heard of them called ComStat meetings or equivalent where you get people in a room for once a week or once a month and they throw a map of crime up on the wall mm. and the police chief's kind of saying, okay, you're in charge of this area, what are you doing about things? And for years I was really hoping, and I attend a lot of these as a guest a lot of the time in many departments, and for years I think I was hoping that I, w I just wanted one person to sit down and say, look, I'm not doing anything right now, but I'm putting something in place that will solve this problem in the long term. Yeah. It won't kick in for three or four yeah, months yeah, because yeah. it's taking a long, slow build to get there, yeah. but it will solve the problem you know, or into the foreseeable future after that. And I never saw it. And of course, the reality is that's entirely unrealistic to the organizational way that mm. policing works. 
where you can't not do something. You have, to, as you're saying, you have to be seen to do something. Even though a lot of the time what we just do is smoke and mirrors, that probably has very little mm. impact whatsoever. But we solve the crime problem half the time because it just regresses to the mean. Yeah. So, you know, Francis Galton discovered over a mm. hundred years ago. But the reality is that we probably haven't put much analysis and thought into it. We did something and we got lucky. But that's the organizational situation. Yeah. You can't turn around to the police chief and say, I'm not doing anything about yeah. that. And I don't plan to do anything about that because that's career suicide. Mm. And equally, the chief's under the pressure because they can't say that to the mayor and they can't say that to the city manager. And you also, and in some parts, in some jurisdictions, the sheriffs are elected. So they can't turn around and not yeah, be yeah. doing something. But the problem is it reinforces that sense of doing small things mm. is enough. And, and I think my understanding is in medicine is where the concept of watchful waiting uh, came from. That obviously medical Okay, I've not heard of that. So yeah. what's that? What, well, watchful waiting is medical practitioners, you're saying like police, like managers, like, you know, many of us have a tendency to over-intervene. So we see a problem or issue, rather than saying, well, let's just see, let's just not do anything, let's see what happens. The tendency, no, we've got to do something, we've got to do something really quickly, do it kind of now. So with watchful waiting, the idea is, okay, so patients presented with certain symptoms, they may be pretty serious, but don't just intervene unless there's some like immediate sort of crisis, just wait and see what happens. Because of things like re regression to the mean or spontaneous recovery or something else might be going on, just watch, wait, and see what happens. That, that idea of doing that is to, is to try and remind people that maybe intervening and trying to fiddle and interfere with stuff all the time is not actually maybe going to help. What are the risk mechanisms for people who indulge in that though? Because the accountability mechanisms, yes. especially in policing and public accountability, you know, if things go wrong or you don't inform the public about threats, you know, we have issues around sex offenders and we have issues around serial offenders. There's a lot of pressure to inform the public and a lot of problems have occurred in police departments that don't provide enough early warning to the public about potential threats. Mm. Does the medical field share those types of risks, that level of accountability? Watchful waiting sounds great, but it seems to be have an element of risk associated yeah, with it. Yeah, I think there is an element of risk, but again, I think it comes down to, like in any context, it's about being clear and explicit about the basis on which you're making those decisions. Mm. So if you can say, I did not intervene, and this is why I didn't intervene, based on this information evidence, then I think there is more accountability. If, you, if it looks like, well, I don't know, we don't know why you didn't do anything, why didn't you do something? If, if you can't explain that, can't give an account of that, then, yeah, there isn't much accountability there. But if you can actually say, this is why I did it, and show that the waiting was watchful, as in, yes, I kept measuring this thing every half hour, okay. or I kept checking this, and I, I asked around, and I kept watching, looking, checking, and if this went out of this parameter or this change in that way, then yes, I would have done something, but actually I was keeping it in these bounds for good reason. What makes that interesting is that's something I think we need more of in policing, which is better articulation of decision-making yes, processes. Exactly. Yeah. Because I think with more articulation, having to actually document why we made certain decisions mm. would probably make people think about using different types of evidence yes. to support that process. Yeah. But so often it just happens in an ad hoc meeting yes. that never gets revisited, even if somebody's taking meeting notes. Nobody ever goes yeah. back and revisits them because the next yeah. crisis is just around the corner. Exactly. And one of the things that we sometimes do in the training is, and it can be quite enlightening, is to do something called like a decision post-mortem. So we get people to think about a policy or practice they introduced, you know, a fairly big thing that was going to cost a lot of money and take some time and resources. And we get them to say, okay, so what was the problem that triggered this activity? What was the actual problem? Think about the different sorts of evidence once you've done that. Then think about why you chose this intervention rather than others. What was the basis for that? 
And typically, uh, again, unless it's an emergency kind of situation or the military or, or you know, a plane crash or something, typically people have never done that before in their entire career. They've never thought about the way they made a decision. So even something as basic as that, like, it's similar to like an after-action review in some sort of context as well. But certainly for managers, and particularly senior managers, you know, I might say to them, well, you know, how much of your time do you spend making important decisions? It's like 60, 70%. And they go, how many of you have ever analysed the decision you made? And it's almost nobody. That's fascinating. So the very thing that's seen as a crucial skill, which is why we put people in those positions of responsibility, that idea that you look back on your decisions, is just routine, as you might, if you bake a cake, you check it. If you do other things, you check, you know, that's the skill we're exercising. The same, I guess, in policing and other contexts, people are getting together, they're making decisions, but they don't revisit them. And we don't like going back. And I no. think it comes back to this, like, downloading the problems. Some things we don't seem to like doing because going back seems a bit sort of negative must move on the next thing looking forward going ahead all those kind of expressions not well hold on what, what did we do in the past and i think even some of those quite simple things could help quite a lot if it was built into a process that you say every time we make a reasonable decision but we're also going to look back on it again in a month's time a year's time. let's just go and revisit it not to blame anybody but so we get better at doing this and it's not recognised as a skill, I think. There's a related thing I've heard about. I'm not sure I should talk about this on the podcast. Yeah, yeah I'll give it a go because I'm trying to flex a few random brain cells. There's a related thing I've heard about called a pre-mortem. Yes. Which is to say, as we're about to make a decision, let's project ourselves six months down the line yeah. and anticipate that it's gone wrong. And then to actively think about how might it have gone wrong and yeah. what were the implications as a way to kind of make it a more defensible approach to implement this new strategy. Yeah. And I think that's another way of doing it. So it's another technique to help people focus on the way in which they're thinking about a problem and solution. I think a pre-mortem is another way of doing it. Any technique that gives people space and time to reflect on decisions in a non-judgmental way, then I think that's going to help with the whole process of evidence-based practice. Because it won't seem so weird to then make a decision on the basis of evidence. It'll seem like, well, of course we do, because it's how we think about stuff. It's not weird. And getting, I think, evidence-based practice from being anomalous and strange to just ordinary mm. is also quite important, I think. I don't it know also, how you do that, but... Yeah, but it also feels a bit negative as well. Yeah. That's the challenge to it. And you know, we like to think everything that we do is positive. Yes. The idea, I think, for a lot of police managers to introduce the idea that something works is fine, that something might not work, they're okay conceptually with that notion. But to introduce the idea that we might have our, the best intentions, but actually be harmful, mm. like some programs have been evaluated and found to be actually sure. harmful, yeah. is it, still, I think, a bridge too far for many yes. people to get their head around it. That just feels too negative. I love the idea of a pre-mortem because we spend a lot of time thinking about the substance of problems that we're addressing and not about how we're yes. actually analyzing the problem. Yeah, and, and also I think, it, it, not just true in policing, it's certainly true in areas of organisational psychology and HR and management. And when people think about interventions, they tend to think of it in the scale of zero, it does nothing, to 100, it does has great benefit. It was awesome, yeah. Yeah, and then you think, well, where's, where's, the, harm, where's the harm dimension? Where's the harm dimension? Yeah. Because if you only think about positive effects going from zero to 100, then you're not even going to pay attention to the harms. And I think that, yeah, the pre-mortem way of thinking about, look, but it seems to me any intervention that has active effects also has the potential to do harm as well as benefit. And I, and I can't see any intervention that couldn't, in principle, also do harm because it's doing something. And part of that something could be harmful. So you need to always weigh these things up again and think about the negatives too. And that's very, for a very kind of proactive, yeah. you know, let's go out there, let's fix the problem, let's... Yeah. Very active... Yes 
kind of field yeah. that, that embraces and rewards being more active than mm. being more reflective. Policing is not necessarily a particularly reflective no. business. And I, and I think part of that is also, that, and this, I think it's true in management too, that some problems and issues are they're fairly straightforward, as in there is a problem, you can understand it quite well, you can diagnose it quite well, there is a sort of solution that works and you do it and it is effective. And I think everything... And then you couple that with an inability for us to actually properly assess the outcomes yeah. of what we do. There's a tendency to think that if we do enough outputs, we've been successful. Yeah, yeah. And everything gets everything can get framed as one of those very simple kinds of problems. But it doesn't mean everything you do is like that. Some things, the problem's very uncertain, potential solutions are very unclear, there's a lot of harms as well as potential benefits, but we tend to always apply the simple laws of physics. If we do this, then that will happen. Mm. Because that is the case sometimes, but there's many cases that isn't the case. So we, but we apply the same kind of model, the same simple causal logic. And we imbue it with our own intentions. And because we have yes. good intentions, the idea that we yeah. might do harm is not something yeah. we're prepared to think about. Yes, yeah. And that, yes. And again, go parallel with management. That's true in areas such as well-being at work or diversity and inclusion, where people just feel this is the right thing to do. And because they believe it is so much, have such good intentions, yes, the impetus to just take action and just to do stuff and not see it's at all harmful, really, or as a cloud judgment as well. Dare, scared, straight, critical yeah. instance, stress, yes. debriefing, all yeah. of these things have potential and some yes. of them have been demonstrated to actually be more harmful mm. than to be helpful. Yeah, yeah. Um, so you've really got a handle on policing because um, I know you've been working with the Society of Evidence-Based Policing in the UK and here with the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing here in Cincinnati. Do you have any thoughts on one or two things that if you were in charge of mm. policing, you would prioritise as the next steps forward to move evidence-based practice? Mm. In relation to policing, one thing and why I like working with policing organisations is they seem, and I may be completely deluded about this, but they seem to be relatively open at least to the idea. I think just about half my podcast listeners are nodding, going, yep, you're totally deluded on that okay, one. Okay, <laughs> totally but <laughs> And it's, okay, that's, that's fine. <laughs> Thank you for letting me know. Um, I'm probably just being glass half empty yeah. at this point. <laughs> but it, but, it, but it, I suppose I'm comparing with other professions I've had interactions with, and I think one of the reasons is... There I think, is, I think there are a good core of people who, yeah. who really get it, because they want to move the policing field forward. Yeah, and I think also because in the context of policing, people can see harms, they see danger. And I think also fundamental, I think, my sense is that police organisations, they see what they do is important yes. for society and for people. And they can, they, that is sort of self, almost self-evident it is. So for that reason, if you say, do you, want to, do you want to do this better? They're a bit more open to it than maybe in other professions. They're not even quite sure whether what they do is important or not. Mm, right. Uh, and there are many professions like that too. So I think there's a sort of, relatively then, there's a kind of some openness to it. I think people in policing get very frustrated, but I, I doubt you'll find many people who doubt that it has some vital role in society. And I think I it's very hard for me to give specific advice to any profession, but I would say that from what I've picked up, I think... My sense is that the early training given to police officers could incorporate a bit more of this stuff. So my sense is certainly in the UK, and I think from the US as well, that early training is not really about the way in which you make decisions. So I would say, for example, the idea of introducing what quantity biases are, what some of the things you can try and do to overcome, I don't mean implicit or unconscious bias, but just kind of conscious bias more so, is really important because it's saying you you're going to have to make a lot of decisions some of those could be very important actually affect people's lives so the first thing you should know is a bit more about how you do that how does your 
brain work to do that stuff. So one of the critiques in the way. Right. So one of the critiques of evidence-based policing, however, is that it, uh, currently it lacks relevance for frontline policing, mm. which is dealing with individual cases, mm. individual calls for service. Yeah, that is a reasonable critique if it's presented as, here's my huge meta-analysis, here's my systematic review of 300 studies. Of course people go, but you're not, you're not on the street. I'm dealing with yeah. a person in a context on a Sunday afternoon. And I think that's probably a mistake of the way we push that evidence onto people. Mm-hmm. So rather than say, okay, yeah, there is all kinds of evidence. Let's talk about you and that person on that Sunday afternoon. Let's talk about that. What do you need to know to do whatever it is better? What would help you do it better? Right. So start there and then say, you know, yeah, and actually there might be the system after you that will help you make a better decision at that point. So it's an articulation issue as much as a yeah. thinking about the, also thinking about the future of the research. It's not articulation, yes, yeah, so it's an articulation issue. And I think also going back to the initial training is putting, I think, police officers and other people who make those kinds of decisions into a frame of mind of thinking, yes, you are you are responsible, you are using your faculties of various kinds, you're using information of various kinds, you are doing that. You're not not doing it, you're doing it. So how, you know, how can we do that better? How can you reflect on the way that is done? Right. So people see that as a really important skill they have to bring to bear. And we can enhance their experience by bringing some of the research. It's exactly. not a replacement for their experience, it's a way to enhance and yeah. improve their yeah, absolutely. capacity. Absolutely, and I think that, that's what's so important about this idea of multiple sources. So again, in a sense, one of the stakeholders is that the member of the public you're interacting with, as well as maybe their family and onlookers and bystanders, whatever else it is. But understanding that stakeholder and what they want and don't want and what's important to them, again, is another part of that, the evidence picture, I would say, as well as the scientific evidence and their experience. And it is about, yeah, one kind of, as you say, enhancing, contextualising the other that's very important. And what can we do at the other end? So one of the things I enjoyed about your presentation here in Cincinnati was that you mentioned the hardest three words Mm. for a manager or a leader to say. Yes. Yeah. Which is, I don't know. Yeah, I think it is. How do we generate an environment where it becomes more acceptable for leaders in policing, which is a very kind of Mm. hierarchical, rank-structured organisation, where people at the top are supposed to know all the answers, and I think they feel they're supposed to know all the answers, to say, you know what, I don't know. Mm. And for that to be a safer environment for people to say that, because that's going to help us move forward as well. I don't know. I don't know the answer to that. But I think trying to encourage sometimes a bit more humility about what we know and don't know. Have you met met some senior police officers? Uh, No, I haven't. (laughs) (laughs) But yes, humility might Good luck with that. Yeah, the opposite of of what qualities they may possess. But I think, as you mentioned before, it's not going to happen overnight, but it may be that humility, asking questions, being aware of what you know and don't know, becomes a basis on which people are rewarded and recruited and promoted into those kinds of positions. So it's a bit chicken and egg, because I don't really know how you would do it. But I think certainly the idea of it being okay to say you don't know and, and not being sure, but having a means for finding out seems to be pretty crucial. I actually admire people. I, I'm, I'm impressed with their confidence. I admire them more for when they actually step up and say, I don't know. Yes. I mean, me, me too. The example I often give is, you know, you're at home, you've got a problem with the plumbing or something, or electrician or whatever. People come around and go, yeah, I know what it is, I can fix it now. Versus people come around and say, actually, it could be this, it could be that. I'm not sure, I need to do this. I go, yeah, okay, I trust the second person. Yes. Well, because it appears as though they're thinking. Now, the first person may be right, and but at least for the second person, it appears they're going through a process of understanding. I almost want to, to see their it. diagnosis yes. take place so I can yeah. get the feel that they're going through a process yes. rather than just leaping to a conclusion. Yeah, 
And I would say in the context of those maybe leaders who don't do that, you know, don't have that humility, nobody for a moment can blame them, they, them as individuals. No. They've been promoted through a system which has rewarded certain kinds of behaviours and punished other kinds of behaviours. So in yes. a sense, we get the leaders we create. You know? So it's not all about them, it's about the systems that have created that. Yeah. So in any, anything, it's about changing, trying to change some of the systems and structures rather than the individuals who happen to be in those positions. Mm -hmm. And it biases a certain type of person, which doesn't necessarily yeah. help in yes. terms of policing. Yeah. Well, this has been fascinating. Yeah. Rob Breener, thanks ever so much for your time. You're welcome. Thank you. You've been listening to episode 11 of Reducing Crime, recorded at the American Society of Evidence-Based Policing Conference in Cincinnati in May 2019. You can find more episodes at reducingcrime.com or the usual podcasty places. New episodes are announced on Twitter at underscore reducing crime. Don't forget the underscore. Be safe and best of luck. <laughs>